Welcome back to those who have listened to previous episodes and welcome, happy to have new listeners. Be sure to go back a few episodes and listen to those so you can have additional knowledge on this topic that we're discussing today. Today, I'm very excited to have a conversation with Evelise Valentin, a longtime friend and past colleague. We actually started our social work career together. We got our bachelor's together, we got our master's together, and then we worked at the same agency together. Today, we will be discussing a combination of topics, including Evelise's experience as a Latina individual as well as serving a large Latinx population where she provides mental health services. Welcome, Evelise, and I'm so happy to have you here today. Hi, Lorena. The pleasure is all mine, and thank you for having me again on your podcast. So can you tell us a bit about your background, both culturally and professionally? Absolutely. Uh, So I was born in Puerto Rico. I have lived all my life in the USA. However, I would visit Puerto Rico every summer as a child and continue to visit as an adult, spending my entire summers there at times during my childhood. Mm-hmm. Puerto Rico is and will always be my home away from home. I currently work as an elementary school social worker at a community school in Hartford, Connecticut, where the majority of our students are Hispanic and Latino, as well as a big Brazilian population that has been growing over the past three to four years. Prior to this role, I was an adult mental health clinician, primarily working with the Hispanic and Latino community, also in Hartford, Connecticut, where I did mental health and substance work. Okay. So how has it been working with the population that you identify with versus the population that you don't identify with? So maybe the Puerto Rican individuals versus the Brazilian. Well, as always, working with the Latino community is very familiar. Being of Puerto Rican descent, it obviously tends to be very easy to engage such individuals and build Mm -hmm. rapport. And it is quite easy for them to allow me to enter their lives and allow Mm -hmm. me to assist them in various ways. With the Brazilian population, it is also very similar, I would say. Mm -hmm. But I have noticed that they do tend to be a little bit more on the guarded side compared Mm -hmm. to Latinos, such as Puerto Ricans or Mexicans, Peruvians. Mm -hmm. But my daughter is half Brazilian. So because I have some cultural connection to the Brazilian Mm -hmm. community, and they know this, and they know that I lived for almost one year in Brazil and speak the language quite fluently, I feel that that does give me an advantage to be Mm -hmm. able to connect with them easier and more quickly had I not had those experiences or Mm -hmm. had I not even have lived there. And therefore, because I'm able to say that I'm familiar with some of the cultures and traditions, Mm -hmm. I feel that that is very helpful when working with the Brazilian community. So would you say that working with populations that are able to identify with you personally, you can see that is easier for them to not be guarded? I would say yes, because when Mm -hmm. I first started working in the school setting after leaving the adult mental health, I worked Mm -hmm. in a school that was not primarily Hispanic Mm -hmm. or Latinos. So it was difficult for me to connect with those students and with the families Mm -hmm. and even the staff members, certain staff members. And now that I'm at a school where it is the majority are Hispanic or Latino, it definitely is a lot easier for me to connect with the students and the families. I wouldn't say that I feel like I belong, but I just feel this Mm -hmm. natural connection. Yeah, that makes sense. And in terms of your own cultural identity and being Puerto Rican, what traditions from that culture do you continue encompassing? And how has that evolved or changed since building on those traditions and cultures in the U.S.? Well, for me, being Puerto Rico means so much. Um, It really means spending summers on the farm with my grandparents, my aunts, uncles, and cousins. It brings me back to my childhood a lot, Uh, Mm -hmm. playing outside all day long on the farm, going horseback riding, running around behind the chickens and chasing animals all day long, spending Mm -hmm. endless summers summer days at the beaches. It means watching my family cook traditional Spanish foods from scratch, 
with the food that was harvested right there from the farm. So, Mm -hmm. for example, in my early childhood years, I would watch my grandmother cooking with my mother and my aunts, preparing these huge feasts for the families to to eat um, when they would come over for lunch or dinner, especially for my uncles when they would be out working in the farm and my cousins Mm -hmm. as well. It means a lot of Spanish music, such as salsa, merengue, and plena, which is a very typical old Spanish music. Mm-hmm. Um, and now reggaeton as well, and in the sense of new kind of the Spanish music. Yeah. Um, and all of these, all of these different genres, I continue to listen to. Pretty much every day, I listen to some kind of Spanish music, whether it's the older artists or the newer artists. I also think about the holidays when we gather during holiday times to prepare traditional Spanish meals and reminiscing about the times that we once shared in in the past. Uh, mm-hmm. Cooking together in a Latino community is a very big tradition, I would say, across all different Latin backgrounds. Mm-hmm. It brings the families together, especially traditionally the women. That yeah. has changed now, as we know, but, you know, you know, our mm-hmm. grandmothers and aunts were the ones that did all that cooking for us. Yeah. And being and being able to have my mother continue to teach me many of these recipes that are time consuming so that hopefully I can try and teach my daughter to make some of these recipes. One that sticks out in particular is every single Christmas, I would make a traditional Spanish budín, which is a bread pudding. Mm -hmm. And I would make that Mm -hmm. recipe with my mother when we were kids using her traditional cookbook that she that she had since she was a teenager. And I still continue to make that recipe and now I make that with my daughter Anna and so hopefully one day she'll continue the recipe. Yeah and that sounds really nice and just from hearing the way that you speak about the memories and the traditions you can tell that it's something that you're still really close with and that you cherish and you want to keep those traditions going so that's really great. It is and that's why I really love going to Puerto Rico um, at -hmm. least once a year after the hurricane happened, I wasn't able to go every year because of some circumstances. But as of two summers ago, I started going again. Mm-hmm. And I was so happy to be there once again. Like I said, it is my home away from home. So it, yeah. when I go back, it feels like I never left. Yeah. And so we've talked a little bit about how you feel connected to these clients and vice versa, and they're able to open up easier and have more trust. You know, confianza, which is trust in Spanish, is very big in the yeah. Latinx community. But what sort of differences have you seen as a therapist between working with the Latinx versus non-Latinx individuals, both in children and adults, since you've had that experience? Some of the differences that I have noticed are systematic barriers Mm -hmm. that Latinos, uh, Latino individuals are presented with. One Mm -hmm. example that really sticks out is regarding health insurance. Mm -hmm. I have worked with many Latinx individuals that are undocumented. And even now, more recently, the students uh, that are of Brazilian descent and their families that have come from Brazil, these individuals are undocumented. And therefore, they're not eligible for insurance Mm -hmm. under any circumstances. Although there is a new law that does allow an undocumented individual here in Connecticut from Mm -hmm. the age of birth until 12 to receive insurance services. Mm -hmm. I I do have to do a little more research on that, but that is something new. So hopefully that is something that will, hopefully that's a barrier that will be uh, decreased now because it's really sad to see families telling me that they can't take their child to the doctor or the ER Mm -hmm. or get those eyeglasses because they don't have insurance and they can't afford Mm -hmm. to pay. It really comes down to, do I take my child to the doctor or do I pay my rent this month? Wow. Yeah, I have seen it with my own two eyes and and it's heartbreaking. You know, Mm -hmm. it's very heartbreaking. And I did also see that uh, when working with the adult community and again it was for individuals that were undocumented that they Mm -hmm. were not able to apply for insurance which I always felt was just not fair you know this is get someone's health and everybody everyone has a right to be able to go to a doctor and take care of their Mm -hmm. health another difference that I see is the quality of care when presented with a language barrier Mm -hmm. For example, the growing population of Brazilian families that have migrated to Connecticut, these families have trouble communicating with many 
agencies because there are so few individuals that speak Portuguese. Mm -hmm. um, I've had to refer students for outside therapeutic services to agencies that I know don't have any individuals that speak Portuguese. So then what mm -hmm. happens? These families will speak Spanish to the best of their ability because the language is a little similar. Most yeah. of the time they are able to get by. Mm -hmm. Or I've also seen individuals that have the option of using a language line to assist these families, but because mm -hmm. they feel it might be too much work or it's too difficult, therefore they choose not to utilize the language line And it really is no different than speaking with, with someone on the phone. So basically yeah. you call the language line and that person will interpret while you have that family member with you. So you're just mm -hmm. speaking to the interpreter and the interpreter will um, then address the interpretation with the family that's there with you. Mm -hmm. And for those individuals that do use the language line, it mm -hmm. does feel rather impersonal though. Even oh, yeah. though they're doing the right mm -hmm. thing by by using the language line, it feels a little awkward. You have this third party yeah. who's doing this interpretation for you, and it's kind of like, who are you connecting with? Are you connecting with the interpreter or are you connecting with the clinician? So although it is a very good tool, it does have that element of not feeling super genuine when it is yeah. being used. Yeah, it's it's definitely helpful, but I, I definitely agree that it's so impersonal and it's still a barrier even when they're able to use the language line because I've used it and it is, like you said, extremely awkward. And I, I think that there's still things that are lost in the translation. I agree. I, I think there are things that are lost and also the body language can be lost. Mm -hmm the tone mm -hmm. that um, also can be lost. And that counts for a lot when you're yeah. providing a therapeutic service. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, an, an hour session, a 45, 50, 60 minute session goes by so fast already that we have to think that when someone uses the language line, they're being cut. Basically, their services are cut in half because of all the time that's yes. spent translating and interpreting. Yes, that reminds me when we have PPT or 504 meetings, we schedule them for 45 minutes for a family that speaks English. And if mm -hmm. we have to use the language line, then we schedule for an hour to allow for a little bit of extra time because mm -hmm. it is with the interpretation, it does take a little extra yeah. time to, to provide that service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's good. But, you know, an extra 15 minutes is, doesn't seem like enough time. But, you know, we're and always... Then, racing against the clock as as clinicians and in the mental health field there never seems to be enough time for anything and something else that comes to mind when using the language line because this has even happened to me so i try really really hard to be mindful of this is mm -hmm. when you have an individual in front of you that you're using the language line many individuals tend to speak into the phone and forget that the parent is there and forget to make that eye contact with the parent as if they were an English speaker. Yeah. So I have seen staff members, and like I said, I've even done this myself on accident. I have the translator on the phone, on speakerphone, and I'm speaking into the phone and I forget mm -hmm. to make eye contact with a parent. And then I catch myself and I just feel so horrible because I feel like I don't want them to feel like I've forgotten that they that they're there. It's it's yeah. such a horrible feeling. I I hate when that happens. And again, it's a mistake. It's nothing that I do intentionally, but it just goes right. to show how easily you can how easily you can get wrapped up in in using the language line and just forget something so simple such as eye contact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the person ends up feeling invisible at that point. If we're not acknowledging that they're there and treating them as, as a person still, but it's definitely a mistake that I'm sure a lot of us have, have made. But as long as we apologize and acknowledge that we've made a mistake, I've found personally that the patients usually are okay as long as you're acknowledging and not ignoring the fact that you've done that. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I agree. At least being able at the end to say, mm -hmm. I'm sorry if my eye contact was not always there. It, it, mm -hmm. I tend to forget and I'll look this way. But yes, acknowledging yeah. it definitely also goes a long way. I agree. Mm -hmm. And what about when you were working in substance use? Did you see differences there between the Latinx individuals and the non-Latinx individuals? Yes. I, I remember two different agencies that I worked for, and mm -hmm. one agency was primarily Latinos, 
the other mm-hmm. agency was not primarily Latinos. Mm-hmm. So some of the differences that I saw were that in the agency where it was primarily Latinos, most of those individuals, the majority of those individuals with substance were mandated through the court. Mm-hmm. So Although most of the time they were engaged initially in the beginning, they weren't Mm -hmm. as engaged. It did take several weeks for me to see that they were becoming more involved in their group or -hmm. their individual sessions. Whereas the other agency, it was a smaller number of Latinos and they Mm -hmm. were not court mandated. Um, I was able to see that they were much more engaged initially from the beginning Mm -hmm. and also because they were a much smaller setting I feel that it just made it a little bit more intimate for them and I also do remember the room the room in the agency where it was court mandated was a much bigger space and then the Mm -hmm. room at the other agency where the Latino community was not court mandated was a super Mm -hmm. tiny small office yeah. So I felt that because we were literally pretty much sitting like right next to each other, almost to the mm-hmm. point where we felt like we were on top of each other, yeah. we kind of <laughs> had no choice but to really communicate and engage yeah. with each other. But it was You couldn't ignore one another. <laughs> you couldn't ignore one another, exactly. Yeah. But it was heartbreaking because I felt that because the IOP at that second agency was bigger for the non-Spanish, for the non-Latinos, I felt that the Latinos kind of got the short end of the stick and were put into this tiny, small room. Yeah. Would you say that the differences you saw in those individuals was more so due to being mandated by the court versus not mandated or their their cultural identity? Um, I think it was more the mandated, being a mandated client versus a non-mandated client. Yes. Yeah. And I remember in one of the agencies that we worked at together, I ran an anger management slash substance use group for men. And, you know, I'd say 95% of them were court mandated. But the times that I did see individuals, I think more often than not, when they were men, they were there because their significant other wanted them to be there. So it was more so like their partner saw their drinking or other substance use as an issue, and they would ask for them to to seek some help. Yes, I do recall seeing that as well. I do recall one specific client that was basically sharing what you just shared, how his wife Mm -hmm. uh, felt that he needed to get assistance for his drinking and Mm -hmm. basically gave him an ultimatum, you know, you either start getting help or I'm going to leave. So even though he wasn't mandated through a court, for example, he was kind of mandated through marriage. Yeah. But he was open and he did show that he wanted to be there. He wasn't a difficult client to engage. But yes, there were clients that were there because some type of a family member told them that they had to seek therapy at this time Mm -hmm. in their life. Yeah. And I also remember that particularly in the Mexican community, a lot of the Mexican individuals that I saw didn't see drinking like a a pack of beer every day after work as a problem because it's so ingrained in their culture that they started drinking beer. And they also don't, a lot of them would say that beer didn't count as alcohol. When they would say drinking, they would refer to hard liquor. And then I noticed that they would say, no, I didn't drink. But if I said, if I asked, did you have beer? And they would say yes. So I agree. I also saw Mm -hmm. that too. Um, Even with Puerto Rican individuals, for example, Mm -hmm. not just the Mexican population. I recall working with individuals that were functioning alcoholics. They were able Mm -hmm. to go to work. They were able to put in their time at work. But as Mm -hmm. soon as they were done with work, yep, they'd have a few beers and they felt that it was, and it was every day. And they felt Mm -hmm. that that was okay because they were getting up to go to work. They weren't missing work. And also because they were minimizing the kind of alcohol they were drinking, just like Mm -hmm. you said, that well, it's just beer. It's not like I'm drinking tequila or vodka or whiskey. And so that was happening. Excuse me. That was happening every day. And it was hard for them to understand that you do have a problem. 
Mm-hmm. I remember hearing from one of the psychiatrists that worked there that if you can't go three days without drinking, that's an indicator that you have some kind of a problem. Yeah. If And you might be able to go four days, but still you might have a problem. So it, mm-hmm. it, it's not that number three is not concrete, but that always yeah. stuck out with me. Like I would ask clients, can you go three solid days without drinking? And if you can't, then you have some questions you should you need to ask yourself. And with the Mexican population, um, using that as an example, they are a population that does drink rather heavily and they start pretty young. I, mm-hmm. I know Mexican individuals from childhood that they allow their children now, children mm-hmm. uh, under the age of 18, to have a little bit of tequila at a birthday party or a family gathering and it's within a family setting but yeah to them that's okay it's part of their mm-hmm. culture yeah and same with I know in Chile sometimes they'll give someone under the age of 18 a glass of wine during Christmas or New Year's not seen as anything abnormal and in Puerto Rico the drinking age is, the legal drinking age is 18 mm-hmm. so it's different than here where it's 21 yeah. So uh, there's a little cultural difference there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sort of going back to what we were talking before, I wanted to acknowledge that that it's so sad that there's certain professionals that refuse to use the language line. And I've had this happen personally to my parents because they're Spanish speaking only. And a lot of the places that they've been to, they refuse to even use the language line and they don't even try. They say, I don't have it. We don't do that here. Things like that. Even though there's laws in place that say organizations must have that for limited English speaking people. So what do you do or have done in those situations where there's somebody that is working with an individual that doesn't speak the same language? Or have you had an instant where a client didn't want to use the language line? So when this occurs, I assist the staff member. I assist them with translation in order to help that parent Mm -hmm. as a mental health provider. That's part of our role. We need to assist Mm -hmm. and we need to best meet our clients and where they're at and best meet their services and needs. Mm-hmm. So if I also choose not to assist, then I would clearly be creating a disservice to that individual. Mm-hmm. I make sure to keep the individual that did not want to use the language line there with me mm-hmm. so that they can see how easy it is to use so that they can see and hear it for themselves. Cause maybe they've never used it. Let's give this person the benefit of the doubt, let's say. Yeah. Um, that way they're able to see how easy it is. It's nothing hard. But also if they have used it and it's just a matter of they're just choosing not to, then yeah. I'm going to keep you there with me because there's no reason, in my opinion, why you shouldn't use this language line. So you're going to stay yeah. here with me. We're going to make this phone call together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, has that always worked? Then, it has. I've never come across any incident after the fact. So that's been it, it's been helpful. After the fact, then I speak with them alone and I explain to them that I might not be able to assist all the time. My role in the school is, you know, I'm a school social worker. I'm not an interpreter at the end of the day. I'm not a translator. I might be able to provide a brief translation, you know, if if a parent has a a quick question or two, okay. For example, when there's a PPT meeting or a 504 meeting, I facilitate the 504 meetings for Mm -hmm. students and their families. And I, even if it's Spanish, I use the language line because this is a legal document. It's a federal document Mm -hmm. that we're preparing. And I want everyone in that meeting to be clear about what was said. And sometimes there are words that I don't, I can't translate properly because Mm -hmm. it's not a proper kind of translation. And so that I don't feel, I don't feel comfortable doing that. So that, mm-hmm. so that everyone's on the same page, I, I myself like to use the language line for things like that. I even had instances where I've had a Brazilian parent who speaks really fast and I have trouble understanding. So I myself have mm-hmm. used the language line. Okay. But I do explain to the staff member that I'm very busy at the school. I truly am. Mm-hmm. I'm running around doing all kinds of things throughout the entire day. And I don't have time at times mm-hmm. to drop what I'm doing to go and translate for someone, especially when... Yeah there's a language line that can be used. Mm-hmm. So I do my best to assist because I don't want to be that individual that doesn't help. 
But I also have a boundary for them to understand, Mm -hmm. like, listen, if I can, I can. If I can, and if it's something quick and easy, then I will. Yeah, and that's, I think that that's the perfect way to to be and like you said we're here to help we're here to serve the clients but at the same time we have to like you said set those boundaries so that we can prevent the burnout that we're always trying to run away from absolutely absolutely now how have you seen in your practice and previous places of work how have you seen the latinx population being disproportionately impacted in terms of their mental health needs? So yes, I mentioned earlier, I have seen this with health insurance and language barriers and not to sound redundant, but these really Mm -hmm. are two of the biggest things that come to my mind. I Mm -hmm. have been told by certain agencies that they cannot service a student because they do not have health insurance and they also Mm -hmm. don't offer any fee waivers. And this Mm -hmm. is a student who has had suicidal ideations, homicidal uh, remarks, a student that's high risk and does need services outside of a school setting. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there have been times where I am not able to connect Mm -hmm. these families or students with outside assistance because of the insurance barrier, which like I said, hopefully now will Mm -hmm. change with this new law that has been put into place. I've also seen students not qualify for certain autism or academic testing screenings or evaluations because those testing screenings or evaluations are not offered in Portuguese. And because the student does not speak any English or Spanish, they uh, they obviously can't sit for this testing and it's not offered in Portuguese, so we cannot test the student. And also I have seen students being declined for these testings because they're too new to the country. So, Mm -hmm. for example, if the student's been here one year, they won't qualify for for testing because they're new to the country and so it's a language Mm -hmm. barrier. So they just flat out are denied services. Exactly. Wow. Yep. And I don't understand how in our school district, we know there's a growing Brazilian population I don't understand why more isn't being done. And of course, these are, you know, very high up things and even like policy things. But if we have this screening that's in English and Spanish, why can we not prepare it in Portuguese as well? Why, you know, why is it not available? Why is it? Yeah. Why cannot we why can we not work to make it available in Portuguese? For example, I have a student from Brazil who does have Mm -hmm. autism, diagnosed with autism from Brazil with a letter Mm -hmm. and everything, but a certain psychologist refused Mm -hmm. to accept that diagnostic letter because that psychologist felt that it was more of like a template kind of letter written up, Mm -hmm. but the student also was not Uh, the student also did not qualify for testing Mm -hmm. because when we first had the meeting, the student was here just for a few months. Mm -hmm. So according to the psychologist, it was a language barrier. It was also the transition into the States. But from what I've seen, the student does either have autism or some Mm -hmm. kind of a learning disability. But on the bright side, now this, this school year, I was able to qualify him Actually, I'm sorry, I take that back. At the end of last school year, he did qualify Mm -hmm. for a 504. Uh, Mm -hmm. We renewed it this year. And I did qualify him for social work services as well, because that way he'll get a little bit of uh, Mm -hmm. assistance with like the social emotional learning when it comes to Mm -hmm. the autism diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, so many times we kind of have to play these, I don't want to call them games, but we have to kind of try to find ways to make services be available that we're being told no they're not available so then we kind of have to work some sort of magic to get some sort of assistance some sort of help to those kids and adults that need it so now with that student actually when I think about them that's a a family that I'm going to be assisting them with the insurance that he Mm -hmm. hopefully will qualify for now because the parents have been receiving this child's medication from Brazil because they don't have health insurance here. Mm. So they have to send money to Brazil to then have the doctor over there send the student's medication over here 
so that the student is not without his medication. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I know. And do you know the name of this bill that passed or how can I find more information about that? So if you Google, I don't know the exact name of the bill, but if you Google mm-hmm. Husky, I'm actually looking it up right now. Husky CT insurance on their main webpage, mm-hmm. there is, we are excited to announce mm-hmm. two new state funded health coverage programs for children in 2023. They are state Husky A and B. These programs cover uninsured children ages 0 to 12 with household income between 0 to 323% who do not qualify for regular Husky A Medicaid or Husky B coverage because they do not have a qualifying immigration mm-hmm. status. So I will forward this to you right now. Thank you. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. And I, I know it's worth looking at for other states. And, you know, obviously policy mm-hmm. is, a, is, a, is a whole other, we could do a whole other podcast episode on just that. I remember for, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I remember for the last two years, uh, they were working a lot at the state capitol for, you know, pushing for this this bill. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to see that it was, it was approved because like I said, yeah. I've seen with my own two eyes in the school setting, so many children that don't have health insurance. And it's a, it's a great first step, but we definitely have such a long way to go. I mean, this should definitely be yeah. federal, not per state, but at yes, least we're yes. starting somewhere mm-hmm. and hopefully other states can collaborate with the, the ones that have been able to do this and, and make that work. I agree. I, I know so many parents will be so happy about this and it's going to be a relief mm-hmm. at least up in, at least for 12 years or up until yeah. the age of 12. Yeah, hopefully that can be extended I know adults. I know. Yeah, But it is a good first start, like you said. It is mm-hmm. definitely a good first start. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to what we were talking about in interpreting, have you had children serving as interpreters for their parents, guardians in the past? I have. At the school setting, it hasn't happened very often because mm-hmm. I do speak Spanish and Portuguese, so I'm able to communicate with the students and the families. Mm-hmm. This has happened when there might be like a word or two that I'm not able to understand or I'm having trouble mm-hmm. understanding the parents. But for the most part, I have always been able to understand my Portuguese-speaking families. If there is a Portuguese parent that I know usually has trouble understanding me or me understanding them, like I mentioned earlier, then I'll use the language line. Mm -hmm. And I do use the line, as mentioned before, for the meetings. I don't even have, the children don't sit in on the meetings. uh, But if they were sitting in, because they are allowed to, I wouldn't have them mm-hmm. translating. Mm-hmm. There is a difference between an interpreter and a translator. You know, I'm not certified in either. To be an mm-hmm. interpreter, you have to be certified. That's not something I'm certified yeah. in. And and it's so sad that, you know, you're saying that. And as, as adults, we're not doing that. But then children are being asked to do that at, at times when there's not someone available or, you know, the same healthcare provider is refusing to use the language line. I know. I used to have to do it for my parent, my mother, my mother, because mm-hmm. my father speaks so. English and Spanish. But I know mm-hmm. I used to have to do it. And there were times where I wouldn't say that it was annoying, but it was just like, not uncomfortable, but yeah, just like, oh, I, I would say uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, but we have to do what we have to do sometimes. Yeah, that's part of being one of the things uh, of being part of the Latinx community. Yes. So what was the experience you had during the pandemic and in relation to the Latinx community? So during the pandemic, I was working in a school setting. I had already left adult mental health. Uh, Mm -hmm. During this time, I saw many low income families that had difficulty with Internet services Mm -hmm. because they were not able to afford um, Internet Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. So the district, however, was able to assist with this by providing vouchers for Wi-Fi services with certain internet providers for up to a year. Mm-hmm. The district also did provide Chromebooks to every student to make sure that no child was left without a Chromebook because many families were not able to afford one. Mm-hmm. And then also imagine a family that might have two plus students, siblings, children in the home. So two kids, three kids, four kids, all going to school, different ages, they all need their own Chromebook so that they can all log into their different schools and different classrooms. So I also saw students that were very chronically absent from virtual learning. 
because mm-hmm. there were there was not an adult present in the home to make sure that the student was logging on. Mm-hmm. These parents or caregivers might have been working, or at times they themselves were just not engaged in their child's learning mm-hmm. that, to make sure that they were logged on. Some of it might have been that it was a parent or caregiver that worked the third shift. So they were sleeping at seven, eight o'clock in the morning and mm-hmm. forgot to get up or overslept. And so the student was late to log on or just didn't mm-hmm. even log on at all. There were a lot of children parenting, you know, siblings mm-hmm. taking care of their younger siblings. So yeah, it gets to a point where if your seven-year-old little brother isn't listening to you, log- listening to you when you tell them to log on and you have your own schoolwork to do, most of these older kids, they give up. They're like, whatever, I'm not going to continue battling yeah. my brother or my sister. Right. That was a big, a big thing that we saw during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely was uh, logging on and attendance. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing, uh, are, or are you still seeing the effects of the pandemic in the kids in terms of, Absolutely. you know, falling behind and... Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So when you think about the kindergarten students, for example, and even the first grade students, these younger students missed two years of learning pretty much. So they were home and they were not exposed to other children. They were not exposed to a routine. So mm-hmm. we have children literally bouncing off the walls. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it has taken months to get these children stabilized. And we have mm-hmm. been able to, I have, I think of a particular student in kindergarten who when he started this school year, so mm-hmm. last year he was pre-K and then the year before that, if he was, if he was, he wasn't in a school because of the pandemic and then the year before that as well. So this student would leave the classroom, throwing mm-hmm. things, hitting things, would not follow a routine, but with a lot of support, a lot of patience. Mm-hmm. And the mother was very, she was very invested. Like she was very, the principal would tell her okay we got to do this we got to do this we have to do this and she would she would follow through yeah we have certainly seen the difference now the student is a lot a lot more stable in the sense of being able to follow the school routine not leaving the Mm -hmm. classroom we've seen a big difference in him we've seen a lot of lack of social skills children that just Mm -hmm. do not know how to talk to each other they talk at Mm -hmm. each other they'll hit each other instead of using their words Mm -hmm. They are just, they just seem so lost in the sense of how to interact with other students even and and interacting with adults too. So, I mean, even adults forgot how to interact. (laughs) So I can't even imagine how it feels as a child that, you know, was lacking that social connection for so long. Absolutely. So these children, they're not just behind academically, as we Mm -hmm. all know, it is a fact they are behind academically. And then if you add in the fact that they were already behind academically before the pandemic, so now they're like double behind, so to speak, you know? So for example, if there was a third grade student who was at a first grade reading level when the pandemic first hit, now they're maybe like in fifth grade, and now they might still be at that first or maybe a second grade reading level. So So they were behind initially, throw in the pandemic, and now they're behind even more. And then throw yeah. on top the, the social skill element. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, our children are, are lacking a lot of skills and behind in many mm-hmm. different domains because of the pandemic. And you mentioned that the district was able to provide Wi-Fi services and Chromebooks. That's really great that they were able to do that because funding is usually one of the biggest barriers when it comes to implementing new interventions. Do you know how they were able to fund those additional resources? So I do know that there were donors in our community and throughout mm-hmm. Hartford that did donate Chromebooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also money that was provided from the government to be used for COVID-related matters. So the district received, I don't remember the number at this point, but they received a substantial amount of money to be used in the schools for COVID related matters or academic things, just that was COVID money, basically, you could kind of call it. And so that money was Mm -hmm. used and dispersed for different things. So between the donations and the government funding and state funding, those were ways that -hmm. the district was able to provide not just Chromebooks and Wi-Fi, but Mm -hmm. also additional services and also create new positions such as FCSSP, Mm -hmm. which is a family engagement specialist 
basically this yeah. individual is working with the families to engage them in their students learning and also okay. attendance. So okay. even even new new positions were created as a result of this mm-hmm. COVID funding. That's good. That's great that they were able to do that. Yeah. Switching gears a bit, what would you say is your some of your favorite things about working with the Latinx community? Well, I just certainly love being able to connect with them on a cultural level. You know, I love knowing that I can talk about cultural things such as food, music, fashion, my many visits mm-hmm. to Puerto Rico and Brazil with mm-hmm. my students and their families. I spent almost a year in Brazil, so I love that I can not mm-hmm. only speak the language, but I can talk to families about the culture and the life and the experiences that I had while I was in Brazil. And mm-hmm. I love that the families can see that I'm being genuine because I was there. I was in their country. Yeah. I'm not just speaking from maybe things that I've heard or things that I've seen. And mm-hmm. and my daughter is half Brazilian. My ex-husband is uh, of Brazilian descent. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I also have that connection as well that I, yeah. I, I was married to someone who was Brazilian. So mm-hmm. it's not just that I lived there for one year. I, I shared a roof with someone of that same yeah. culture. Mm-hmm. So I feel, like I said, I feel that I can genuinely connect and because they know the, this, these little fun facts about me, it makes it easier for them to want to connect with me also. Right. And how have you gotten that sense that, you're, that the Latinx clients are connecting with you as well? Do they give you any of that feedback? They do. My families do provide me with feedback. It's a little different in a school setting compared to like a clinical setting um, in regards to feedback. But they do in the sense of like when I worked, when we worked at one of the agencies together, you know, we'd ask these questions at the end for some feedback. Mm -hmm. Here at a school, you don't necessarily go around asking the parents, so how am I doing? What can I do better? What can I change? So it's a little different, but they do let me know when I'm being helpful they do mm-hmm. let me know that they appreciate my help. They do let me know if their child um, like loves me. Like I've had parents saying, oh, mm-hmm. so-and-so, they love you. They love yeah. having lunch with you. So that's feedback, you know. And yeah, the kids wanting to come with me and have lunch bunches and come visit mm-hmm. me in my office, even if that's not the student actually saying something out of their mouth in regards to feedback, them wanting to be around me is feedback. Yeah. Children, if... Children know if you don't like them. And if the mm-hmm. child doesn't like you either, they're not going to go looking for yeah. you. They're just Non-verbal not. feedback. Children, ex- exactly. Children want to be around the adults that make them feel loved, warm, mm-hmm. comforted, that they feel happy to be around. So I feel like I am able to connect with them because, like I said, they come back. These families and students come back to me when they need help, when they need me again, if they have a question. Have you ever had a patient provide negative feedback to you directly? And if so, how did you handle it? And have you noticed any difference between the Latinx community and non-Latinx community in terms of maybe their their comfort level with giving feedback? So I recently had a fifth grade student recently. And just so I'm clear, when I say student, I know you say patient or we say patient mm-hmm. or client, but because it's a school, we use the word student, but it, it's interchangeable. Interchangeable. Okay. I just want to be clear on that. Yeah. Thank <laughs> um, you. <laughs> so I recently... Yeah, of course, because anyone listening might be might not understand that piece. So I had a fifth grader recently, actually, she told me that she did not think that girls group was helping her. Because at the end of group, I asked, I had the girls share what they feel is working for them. And Mm -hmm. if they feel something's not working for them. So I wanted to hear some feedback from the the girls to see what they because they're fifth graders, they're definitely capable of telling me I like this, or I don't like this, or can we talk about this? Because this is their group too. And I want them to feel that we are talking about things they want to work on Mm -hmm. and talk about. So other group members shared how they felt that how they felt group was helping them. Mm -hmm. And I explained to her that all patients, clients, students move at a different pace. I explained to her to not feel discouraged if she felt that she was Mm -hmm. not benefiting from the group, considering it had only been a little over a month, maybe like a month and a half since she started Mm -hmm. attending the group. When working with adults, I do remember in the Latinx community, as I mentioned uh, just a bit ago, I was provided a lot of positive feedback. At the end of the session, we asked clients a set of questions Mm-hmm. to rate their session in order to see what was working and what was not working, what they liked, what they didn't like. And the Latinx population always gave the highest rating. 
and mm-hmm. the most positive feedback compared I remember to that. <laughs> clients. And and yeah. I and I remember, I'm sure you remember when we had a trainer come in on this and we yeah. spoke about we I shared that. I said, Well, you know, these are it's a little hard to take this at face value because all of the the Spanish women and mm-hmm. women because that was the majority of the, the Spanish clients, all the Spanish clients gave the highest rating. So mm-hmm. It got to a point where we were wondering, is it just a cultural effective. that they want to be nice kind yeah. of thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, how effective is this really? Is it that they just want to be nice? Is it a cultural thing that they, because they see that we are also Puerto Rican, that they're just giving mm-hmm. us these nice ratings because they feel a connection to us. So that, that, that tool was a little hard to, to really, I kind of had to take it like a grain of salt, you know? Yeah, and, and then, uh, I, because I remember too, they would say, oh, todo bien, todo bien, no problema, no, todo bien, excelente, <laughs> and, and I would be like, well, say more, say more, like, what, what was good about it, <laughs> but yeah. they are just like, I get the sense that they're always so grateful that just someone was there to listen to them, and they were happy with that. I agree. You know, I've been thinking about a lot of those clients a lot recently mm-hmm. over the past few weeks, and I miss them a lot. I do. Yeah, same. Yeah, I do miss them. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the most difficult aspects of working with the Latinx community? So in a school setting, I would say one aspect that's difficult is when a student is chronically apt. Um, mm-hmm. It does take a lot of educating on our part to the parent to help them understand why it's important for mm-hmm. their students, for their children to be in school. And would you say that the Latinx population has a higher absent rate does does your district or school put out those stats at all that's a great question I'd have I would have to ask if we have a Mm -hmm. breakdown of absence by culture Mm -hmm. but I will say comparing one district to another for example Hartford comparing Mm -hmm. that to a a district that is primarily of Caucasian descent Mm -hmm. we definitely have a very high absenteeism rate yeah, and that might Very also high. be probably not only cultural, but also socioeconomic and all the other intersectionalities that these families have probably yeah. are the cause of that, not just the culture, right? Absolutely. Environmental, you know, who's caring for the children? Is it one? Mm-hmm. Is it a single parent? Is it a mm-hmm. grandparent? Is the child yeah. with both parents? So there are so many factors that play into this. We could sit here and dissect that in so many ways. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The safety of where the school is located. I mean, yes. I've had parents say that they just didn't feel safe sending their kids to school. Yes. And mm-hmm. our school is very much like that. Some of the barriers of them coming to school are something as simple as the weather. Our mm-hmm. school is community based and the majority of our students walk to school. So if it's snowing or raining outside, we're definitely going to see a lot of kids that don't show up to school that day. Mm -hmm. I have also encountered parents who work third shift, like I mentioned earlier, and they have trouble getting up in the morning, which will cause their children to miss school or be late. I find that the conversations regarding attendance I have with Latinx Mm -hmm. parents are the same conversations I have with non-Latinx because attendance Mm -hmm. is attendance. The conversation itself is the same. I might ask a bit more questions maybe depending on the situation of the family, but the Mm -hmm. conversation overall is the same. And we have a lot of tools Mm -hmm. that are being used by our district to improve attendance. For example, we recently did the Lucky Snowflake. Every Mm -hmm. morning, Snowflake is put underneath the chair of every single classroom. And if that student is the winner and they're present, they get Mm -hmm. a little prize uh, we oh also I love do that monthly class yeah that's such so a nice incentive was, the kids love it so in March for so this month is is probably going to be like a, a valentine heart because it's valentine's month next month is St. Patrick's so they'll do like a lucky clover one yeah. month it was a lucky soccer ball oh just last towards November when it was the world cup we did the lucky mm-hmm. soccer ball so mm-hmm. we do that twice a week and if that student is present and they win they get a prize for the day we do monthly incentives like if you were not absent for the entire month you get an award with a prize at the end of the month we have friday game day so we have a lot of challenges and incentives for the students 
We yeah. also conduct home visits for students that are chronically absent. So if we have a student yeah. that's been absent two, three days in a row and we can't get mm -hmm. a hold of a parent, we will go to the home and make physical contact with this parent. One of the main reasons is to ensure the child is safe. Yeah. And then to also then have a discussion around why is your student not in school? Why is your child not in school? Mm -hmm. What is and it who that makes we can those do visits? Is, so the social workers like myself, we conduct these visits. The behavior techs conduct these visits. And we have um, the family engagement specialist also conducts these home visits. Mm -hmm. So we do go out into the community to see to see why these students are not at school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like you're you're really the, the district is implementing a lot of new tools to get the attendance rate up yes the the yeah. hartford district they work very hard when it comes yeah. to attendance that's a big priority mm -hmm. for, for the district mm -hmm. what in your opinion is the most important tool or the most important tools to have when working with the latinx immigrant community what kind of advice would you give to those clinicians and practitioners that work with the latinx population it might sound kind of simple, but I think that patience is very important, especially when you're working with individuals that are here in that are coming to the United States for the very first time mm -hmm. and they don't have an understanding of what it is like to live here. You know, they don't understand the school system. They don't understand mm -hmm. how to register a child. They don't understand why you might need certain vaccines in order to even attend school. Mm -hmm. They might not understand a bus line. They might not understand how how to navigate these kinds of agencies. So I feel that patience is a very, very important tool because it takes mm -hmm. a lot of psychoeducating and a lot of teaching and listening and conversations to get an understanding of what brought you here. You know, what is it that you're trying to do? What is it? You, did you flee? Are you here because you're just trying to have a better life for your children? You know, we have a lot of families that came because I have a family, for example, that came here because they're fleeing domestic violence back in their country. I have families that are here because they just want to work and provide a better life for their children. So it takes patience to have these conversations and get to know your families and understand what it is they're trying to accomplish. And that way you can help to better navigate them for the services mm -hmm. that they need and, and what kind of things to educate them on and what kind of things to assist them with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those those are really um, good tools. It sounds like sort of like back to basic. Like what are the basics and yeah. really start from scratch with each individual, not grouping everybody like they've all had the same immigration experience, but looking at who do you mm -hmm. have in front of you, getting to know them and building that trust. Yep, and and in, mm -hmm. in order to build that rapport, it's going to take time. It's going to take mm -hmm take time, which means you're going to have to be patient. Although most Latinos are known to be social and vibrant and, and pretty engaging overall, not all Latinos are trusting right away. Like I said, some yeah. come here because of a traumatic experience. So they might be mm -hmm. nervous and scared and guarded. So right. Communication is, like I mentioned, is very important. It takes a lot of communication to assist these families in, mm -hmm. in, when they come here to this new country. Yeah. What do you think about the cultural competency training that you've had? Because that's something that you know, in the field that we're in is something that we're always being trained on and offered. But how, do you mm -hmm. feel like it, it has been helpful? Honestly, I don't feel like it's been helpful. I feel that they have tended to be rather redundant over the past mm -hmm. few years and kind of repetitive. So I find myself, I find that it's hard for me to be engaged in these trainings because I feel they're so redundant. Yeah. And I feel that they've become so politically charged that I just, mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of them. I, I feel like I, if I want to learn about a culture, I feel like for me, and I speak for me, I'd rather go to a cultural center where they might be having an activity and mm -hmm. they're playing the music and they're sharing the food yeah. and they're talking, you know, like actually, yeah. Okay, something more hands-on. Like something more hands-on. Like when I was mm -hmm. in Brazil, I yeah. was, in a, and I was lucky to be there for a long time, but I learned about the culture and the way of life by being there, mm -hmm. not by sitting in front of a computer listening to a trainer. <laughs> yeah. So for me, for me, if it was that kind of, if it was a training like that, where it's more hands-on and you're actually mm -hmm. in that culture and experiencing mm -hmm. it, even if it's at least for a day, I feel yeah. that would be more effective mm -hmm. and interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree.
Now, in terms of your own identity and positionality, how do you find that that's helped you and or been a hindrance to working with the Latinx community? So although it is never something concerningly inappropriate, Mm Sometimes I become a little too comfortable when I'm speaking with a family or a parent. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the way I might speak with someone might be more of a family friend kind of way than a worker Mm -hmm. client manner. And it just happens unintentionally because, like I said, a school setting is different than a clinical setting. I might speak with a little bit more lingo. If I'm speaking with someone that's Latin, I might speak with a little bit more lingo. So Mm -hmm. if I'm speaking to another Puerto Rican, for example, I'm going to speak the way I would speak when I'm in my island. I mean, using appropriate words, but it's not going to be this proper kind of Spanish. Mm -hmm. So I might accidentally, so for example, I might say chica instead of saying miss in in Spanish. So chica Mm -hmm. is slang for like girl, you know? Yeah. And I've caught myself doing that. And and I've told Mm -hmm. the the mother, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to refer to you like that. I was just Mm -hmm. like talking and the mom is like, oh, no worries. You're fine. You're fine. Yeah. And I noticed I've done that a lot more in a school setting than a clinical mm-hmm. setting. Yeah. Um, because because it feels more is, relaxed. Is, exactly. Because the school is more relaxed, a fun place. The kids are, you know, school, we make school fun. So yeah. we fall into that kind of that environment. So mm-hmm. I, at times, I have noticed that I speak a little too comfortably with a, a parent, although it's always appropriate, just the tone and the yeah. words I might choose. Mm-hmm. And do you think that being more relaxed and using that different language that matches the way that they speak can be helpful at times? And have you ever had an instance where it didn't go well or it didn't go as planned? So yes, being more relaxed can be very helpful at times. It does help to put the student and especially the parent at ease. You know, I might have an irate parent come in and if I'm more relaxed and just more at their level and the way I'm speaking mm-hmm. with them, they tend to bring themselves down quite a, a lot. And like I said, mm-hmm. a school setting is so much more relaxed than a clinical setting when comparing mm-hmm. one to the other. Yeah. Um, I did have one incident where it did not go very well. Mm-hmm. This was last school year. I told the parent over the phone how frustrating it was to continue to have the same conversation with her son and mm-hmm. him not understanding the seriousness of what he was doing that she felt Mm -hmm. that if I was frustrated that I was basically in the wrong field and I Mm -hmm. told her you know every job does come with some level of frustration at times and she did agree with that and I was Mm -hmm. able to talk her down and I didn't even what I I was trying to make a point to her that I've Mm -hmm. had this conversation with your child several times and it's frustrating Mm -hmm. because he doesn't understand how serious this is and I just don't want him to make a bigger mistake yeah Um, now, what has your your personal experience been around mental health in your own family and community and culture? So I do have a family member that spoke with the therapist briefly, but this family member did not feel the modality of treatment that was being used was beneficial. And so she decided to stop the treatment, but she didn't seek another therapist to see if maybe working with a different therapist would help. She felt that speaking to family and seeking spirituality in the church would be more beneficial. Mm -hmm. And that was fine. Of course, I respect that opinion. But I felt that maybe, maybe she should have tried at least one more therapist just to kind of rule Mm -hmm. it out and make sure because it was because it was her first experience with therapy. So she was basically like one and done. Mm-hmm. I myself have utilized a therapist in the past. And to be honest, during that time in my life, it was very helpful. Mm-hmm. It was very nice. And this was when we were in school together. And you know, it was a very stressful time for me. But it was nice to be able to sit down and talk with someone that, that wasn't family, someone that I didn't yeah. have to see and live with. Mm-hmm. And, and it did allow me to be able to open up with my thoughts. And I did like that sense of privacy that I had. I felt yeah. that the privacy w- was mine. And that no one would be able to take that away from me because that was my one hour where I was able to kind of like put my feet up hypothetically mm-hmm. and just detox my mind of any things that I might have had in, in my head. And is mental health something that's discussed openly in your family or when you go back to Puerto Rico and see your family there? So with my family in Puerto Rico, no, but that's only because mm-hmm. the topic really has never come up. I will keep the, that question in mind when I when I go on my next trip, just mm-hmm. ask, I'll ask cu- out of curiosity. But for my family members here, like my mom, my sister and I, for the most part, I would say it is. 
we don't have these long, frequent conversations about it. But, yeah. But we have had topics come up here and there, and it is something that we have and are able to discuss. So does your family in Puerto Rico know that you're a, th- a mental health therapist? Oh, yes. They know what I do yeah. for work. Absolutely. Okay. And they understand it? And- they do. Yep. They understand it. They they do ask questions, mm-hmm. especially when I was working with the adults. But yeah, they understand it. And, and they they like that. I They definitely like that. I like what I do now. I, yeah. I enjoy working in a school more mm-hmm. um, than working in a, in a clinical setting. So yeah. they also have been able to hear the differences of one mm-hmm. setting to another. So they're learning a little bit about the mental health world through you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's great. Yes. I have a family member who asked me questions about mm-hmm. what do you think about this? What do you think about this mm-hmm. in regards to one of her children? So she is receptive to the, yeah. the information that I share with her. Definitely. Good. And what have you found, if, if any, is a, is a good way to explain therapy to a Latinx individual? So I feel that I'm pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. I explained that maybe it might feel awkward at first. Because in our culture, we do tend to keep things within the family. We don't really mm-hmm. share outside of the family or with strangers, yeah. as we would refer. That's how typically, you know, we would refer mm-hmm. to outsiders in, and not share things outside of the family. Yeah. But if you allow yourself a few sessions to speak, then you might and you will most likely come to see how helpful and beneficial it can be. I really like to explain how it's a space where you can really speak about what's on your mind with someone that is trained in order for that clinician to help you to see things from various different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we might speak to a family member and they might just give us one-sided advice rather than helping us to understand all the different options we have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A family member, un- unintentionally, a family member might give advice in a biased manner. So, for example, if a family member comes to me and says, oh, I've had enough of this relationship, I want to leave. Mm-hmm. And if I know that this is not the first time that that family has shared that, I might be more prone to say, you know what, it's time you should leave him. It's done. It's over. Rather mm-hmm. than saying, okay, let's sit down and explore all of our options. What will life look like if you stay, if you leave, if you take a mm-hmm. separation, if you do this? You know, where that's something where a clinician will most likely do help you to explore all your different options. Yeah. And I also do like to explain that it's a form of self care, it's a way of taking mm-hmm. care of yourself so that you can be a better version of yourself. Mm-hmm. We exercise to take care of ourselves physically. We eat good to take care of ourselves nutritionally. Well, going to a therapist is a way of taking care of your mind and mm-hmm. and your body. So yeah. I really think that therapy can be seen as a way of self-care because it's also that little one hour going back to how I utilize it. It's that, it's that yeah. one hour of your private time where you can just get away from everybody in your life and just sit and decompress and talk and listen to to feedback that's given to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great way of explaining it. And I'm definitely going to take some of those pointers to explain therapy to to future individuals and I get that maybe resistance when it's like someone's trying to get their family to go to therapy or do a family session at times when mm-hmm. someone's being asked to go that can feel a little bit scary. So those are some really good yeah. points that you made. Has there been a time when someone struggled to understand the quote unquote point of therapy? Yes, absolutely. And what I do is I try to explain that it's not the quote, the point and quote of therapy mm-hmm. that we need to understand, but rather understanding how you are evolving during therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah, so what people I, are I, taking away. What are you taking away from it? Exactly. And if you're not, that says a lot as well. Is there something that you need to change? Maybe you need to change your therapist. Maybe you need to change your treatment modality. Maybe you need to change the amount of time you go to therapy. It Mm -hmm. could just be one little thing that needs to be changed. But I think it's more important to see what you're taking out of it and how you're evolving. And then that will allow you, I feel, that will allow Mm -hmm. you to understand what the point of therapy was for you. Because your point of therapy, it might be, it's going to be different for you compared mm-hmm. to the person that comes in after you. Yeah. So it's different for everybody. It's an, an individual basis. Yes. Well, we definitely covered an array of topics today. And I want to thank you, Evelise, for coming on the podcast and 
allowing our listeners to get a lot of knowledge from your experience working with the Latinx community, being Puerto Rican yourself. And I can tell how passionate you are about working with this community. And a lot of the things that you said, I know is going to be very helpful for those that have never worked with this population or just don't feel comfortable with the population. I think that this will be a really excellent episode to listen to to get some of some of that guidance that people are looking for. So again, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise with all of us. No, thank you. It was a pleasure. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for thinking of me to have me on as a guest. And um, it was it was a really good conversation. Thank you so much. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope you have the ability to join me on the rest of this journey. And please don't forget the references and all articles that were used to inform this episode can be found in the show notes wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you are experiencing an immediate crisis, please call 911. If you or a loved one are feeling suicidal, please call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. The previous Lifeline number, 1-800-273-8255, is also available to people in emotional distress or a suicidal crisis. SAMHSA also has a free, confidential, 24-7 treatment referral and information service line in English and Spanish, and that number is 1-800-662-4357.